This is an ABC podcast. Some places you visit to to finally see a, a familiar sight in real life. I want to climb the Eiffel Tower. Oh, hello, Empire State. Well, you too, Taj Mahal. How often do we go somewhere just to see if that somewhere is is real? To have it live somewhere other than in our mind's eye. Some places, however, are almost mythic. Are places of our curious imaginings. Nothing known, nothing certain, and yet they're, they're out there. Real. Right now, we're headed somewhere that's almost a byword for nowhere. A synonym for remoteness. Timbuktu, a Rorschach city. What you think about it might say more about you than it. What's the truth of Timbuktu? Let's find out. Attention passengers. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Return Ticket, the podcast that transports you to far-flung places, familiar and unexpected. In this series, we ask the eternal questions like, why is Tasmania so terrible? Does Paris make bread or does bread make Paris? And how does rubber tell the modern story of Kuala Lumpur? The first recorded instance of Timbuktu being used to describe something very, very far away was in 1863. The English writer, Lady Duff Gordon, uh, invoked the city in a letter lamenting how familiar Cairo had become. To quote, it's growing dreadfully cockney here. She wrote, "I, I must go to Timbuktu. That was then. And this is now. And we've got a wealth of tools available to us to to understand, to see what that city really is. Here's a quick primer. Timbuktu is a city in northern Mali, a francophone country in West Africa that straddles the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. The city's heyday was in the early medieval period. Coffers overflowing with riches thanks to trade in gold, salt, ivory and slaves. At this time, it's estimated that Timbuktu's rulers were among the richest people in the world and they spent it on grand architecture and scholarship. And it was around this time that Timbuktu became the cradle of Islam in Africa with scholars pumping out reams of manuscripts. These covered a variety of topics, Islamic law, astronomy, poetry, medicine, all up. It's estimated that there were 700,000 manuscripts produced, mostly between the 14th and the 16th centuries. So you you can think of Timbuktu as, as one giant library. Since those documents were created, families across the city became custodians of them. And the mere existence of these libraries spoke back to European colonisers centuries later, in Mali's case, the French, who incorrectly believed that their subjects could only pass on knowledge orally. So, when you put all of this together, 
It's no wonder Timbuktu has been such a, such a mesmerising place. A place where previous generations of travellers risked certain death just to get a glimpse. But today, Timbuktu is a shell of its former self and the risk of death is still present. Albeit for different reasons. Play the tape. As well as whipping people, the Islamists demolished some of the city's holiest buildings. This was one of several tombs of Muslim saints. There are said to be 333 saints buried in the town, but the militants denounced that as idol worship and got out their sledgehammers. And that's why I'm not there today. I'm looking at Timbuktu through my laptop screen here at home. For a decade now, northern Mali has been mired in violence. There have been Islamist insurgencies, French counter-offensives, Russian mercenaries, a recent coup. Anyway, for now, perhaps a journey to Timbuktu is best done in the mind. First step, to talk to someone who's been there many times. His name is Lazar Alondo Osomo, and he is more than well-credentialed. He's director of UNESCO's World Heritage Centre. It's basically the biggest heritage conservation agency. And when Timbuktu was under threat from Islamist insurgents, well, it was Lazar who led its protection and repair. Oh, oh hang on. Here's Lazar now. Uh, Lazar, thank you. Thank you for, for finding this time. But before you had ever been there, what, what did the word Timbuktu conjure in your mind? You know, I started hearing about Timbuktu when I was in high school, uh, when uh, my teachers were uh, telling us about, uh, you know, some of the history of Africa. I think Timbuktu seemed to me really far away. I, at that time, I hadn't taken the plane in my life. I was... Uh, growing in Cameroon, in a small city, I always had the impression that, you know, what was coming from Timbuktu was quite special. But I didn't know at that time why. And I didn't imagine that one day uh, I will be uh, considered as one of the specialists of uh, Timbuktu's uh, heritage. And tell us about what, what is special. I mean, and, and I mean, this is this is such a significant city in, in the story of African Islam. Is such a significant city in in the story of of, of colonial Africa and, and geographic Africa. There are so many so many facets to its its heritage significance. Timbuktu was recognised as a World Heritage Site in 1988. Timbuktu and its mosque was recognised as a, a place that have uh, been very important in the spread of Islam in Africa at a very early period, starting from the ninth centuries of uh, the period Timbuktu was considered as an intellectual and spiritual capital in West Africa. It was the place at the center of a commercial route, a spiritual route, and even a cultural center because of its university, because at that time in the 16th century, uh, the University of Sankore could even 
you know, receive 25,000 students in a city that was about uh, 100,000 inhabitants. So this was quite exceptional. And you are amazed by the knowledge of the people living in Timbuktu. You immediately realize that these are people who have been living with a long, 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 long tradition of uh, transmitting from one generation to another one the history of the city. How, how then did, did those people respond in, in, in 2012 when Islamist militants take over the city? The city was occupied by, I would say, kind of foreigners who could not understand what was happening in Timbuktu, who could not understand that in Timbuktu, the fact that you were having mausoleums of sense, the fact that you were having people practicing their religions, the fact that you were having people protecting their ancient manuscripts was something unique in the world that by uh, denying it, you were denying an entire society of existence. We must not forget that, you know, this terrible period has been a trauma, has been a trauma for the people in Timbuktu. The great imam of Timbuktu told me, he told me that Timbuktu was something special for them because they are uh, mausoleums and they are ancient manuscripts were like their lungs, that if one was to be destroyed, it means their life was to be completely destroyed. That's a striking image of their lungs. Yeah. Is the city still vulnerable? Is it, are its heritage values still vulnerable? The city is still vulnerable, of course, because, you know, the, the insecurity situation remains in the northern part of Mali. But the Muslims have been reconstructed. There is a life that has started again in Timbuktu, and but there are challenges, and I think this is very difficult. So we remain vigilant. Lazar, thank you. What, what a what a vivid picture you paint, and and what an extraordinary place it must be. Thank you for taking us there. Uh, you know, Timbuktu, it's really one of the exceptional and unique place in the world. And I hope when peace come back to Timbuktu, you, Jonathan, will be able to visit Timbuktu. I am inspired. I hope that will happen too. <laughs> okay, so before I realised I shouldn't really travel to Timbuktu, I, I must confess, I didn't really know much about it. Nor did I know about the, the sheer speed of destruction during the insurgents' invasion of Timbuktu, or the daring tale of the Timbuktu librarians, ordinary people, who smuggled hundreds of thousands of manuscripts out of the city for safekeeping. There's a whole trove of these manuscripts digitised on Google right now. So, when I... Googled a bit more about what Lazar spoke about. <laughs> One name kept coming up. The Timbuktu Renaissance Initiative. What is that? <laughs> Hang on, let me let me open the page. Oh, and, and there's the number. I'll, I'll see if anyone picks up. Hello, this is Cynthia Schneider. Oh, Cynthia, hello. I, I didn't expect anyone to pick up, but while I've got you, I've got a, a few questions about Timbuktu, if you don't mind staying online. Yeah, no, that's just fine. Bizarrely, that happens to me pretty often. Well, 
Could you begin? I mean, let's investigate why that might be. <laughs> Tell me more about what you uh, what you do. I am a co-director of the Timbuktu Renaissance, which is a Malian association dedicated to supporting Malian, especially Timbuktu's recovery from conflict that has been going on in the country now for 10 years through a focus on her culture. Now, this is, of course, a very logical thing for someone who used to be an art historian specializing in 17th century Dutch art, and then uh, the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands, and then eventually a professor of cultural diplomacy at Georgetown. But, of course, none of this has anything to do with Timbuktu. Well, I was going to say. (laughs) Before you knew anything about it, Cynthia, what, what did that word conjure for you? Oh, just a very far away place. I'm not sure I was totally sure whether or not Timbuktu actually existed. How did you then come to learn and, and come to be for it to play such a part in your life? Well, it's, it happened the way really all the best things have happened in my life, and that is through friendship. So my friend, Chris Shield, he went to this incredible event, the Festival au Dessert, which used to take place outside Timbuktu. So when he went to the festival, he befriended the director of the festival, Manny Ansar, uh, who had founded it uh, in the early 2000s. And it was a week-long music festival in the desert uh, featuring Malian musicians who, as you know, Malian musicians, Malian music is the roots of blues and rock and roll transported through the slave trade to the southern United States. And it's those beats that seeded the blues and eventually rock and roll. So they got a hold of me because I had been working with the Brookings Institution, organizing groups of arts and cultural leaders from the United States and from Muslim-majority countries around the world to meet every year at the Brookings Institution's U.S. Islamic World Forum that was held in Doha, Qatar. Tell me, tell me more about that and what culturally, what in terms of heritage you are attempting to restore in Timbuktu. Our main effort has been in bringing people together around live music. After the occupation, nobody trusted anyone and there was real divisions in society. And we felt that if we could start having live concerts again, that would bring everyone together. They would be dancing and singing together, and that would erase all of these divisions and help people unite in their effort to build a peaceful future for Mali. Cynthia, I'm so glad you picked up the phone and and that I could hear a little about Timbuktu Renaissance, bringing peace and hope through music. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome. And I'd really encourage you to interview Manny Ansar, who was the founding director of the Festival au Desert. Oh, Manny, thanks, Cynthia. Uh, A festival in the desert. I simply have to find out more. So, about Manny Ansar, Cynthia's friend, the more I read about him, 
The more I learn that he is a big deal, he's the guy who created the Festival au Desert. It's essentially the African Woodstock. It started off in 2001. And over the next decade, it became a, a global phenomenon. Internationals came to play. U2's Bono, Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant, Blur's Damon Albarn. But as you'd expect, it got shut down in 2012 when the insurgents took over. They banned music anyway, destroyed the festival site, burned instruments. So Manny, along with swathes of people in Timbuktu, had to flee for their lives. First stops were displaced persons camps in Burkina Faso, and in time he moved back to Mali, setting up in the capital, Bamako. So I've come into the Radio National office because I'll need help talking to Manny, quite, quite literally. The thing is, out of about 80 different languages, Mali's official language is French. You could say that my French is a trifle threadbare. Well, actually non-existent. Chances are I'll be able to find a French speaker in here. Mm. What's that? Ah, oh, well, isn't this my luck? Uh, excuse me, excusez-moi. Uh, hello. Uh, hi. Uh, look, I'm, I'm I'm from Return Ticket upstairs. And, um, I, I was walking the halls trying to trying to figure out how to speak to this guy, uh, Manny Ansa, um, and, and he's in Mali, and and he he ran this festival in Timbuktu, and now he lives in in Bamako. And anyway, I I need to speak to him, uh, and I was uh, hoping you could okay. help me out. Okay, let's begin with your name. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, uh, what's your name? I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. I, I host Pacific Beat here at ABC Pacific. And as you might have just caught on, I can speak French. And yes, of course, I can help you out. What was that guy's name again? Oh, so good. Uh, Manny Ansa. Uh, okay. And his phone number? Yep, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, just give me one sec. Okay, I'll look, and, 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 and here are my questions. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Let's begin. Okay. Et je suis Claire. Très bien, très bien. Okay. Um, je comprends que vous êtes né à... Yes, we are going to speak a little bit about that festival of the desert soon. But before that, I understand that you were born in Essekan, in a region of Mali that's home to the Tuareg people. Is that right? That's right. It's a nomadic people. In fact, Timbuktu is a city, the place where there are horses. But very often in the north of Timbuktu, that's where there are sand dunes, that's where the nomads live as well. Since I was born, I always still feel connected to nomads. What is your image of Timbuktu? What was the image of Timbuktu when you were growing up? As a child, I would hear my parents and other people say, we are going to the city. We never would say Timbuktu. It was like it was the only city that existed to us. And going to Timbuktu, that means you are going with your ship to go to sell them, to buy bread or 
sugar or those sort of things to refuel and come back to the nomadic camps. As we have mentioned, you created the Festival of the Desert. Can you talk to us a bit about the origins of the festival? That first year we barely had 500 people attend. But then after three years we had more than 5,000 people. 5,000 people. Imagine that. 5,000 people going to a desert, all of them coming out there. Two years after that, 10,000 people came. So it was growing and growing and everyone wanted to come and see it. From the third year, we were in Timbuktu. People had heard of Timbuktu, but they heard it in the way you would hear a dream. But when they saw it in the newspaper, when they saw footage of the festival in Timbuktu on the TV, a festival in the home of Tuareg. They thought, wow, so it is possible to go see Timbuktu, it is possible to see a festival there. Um, so the festival suddenly came to an end in 2012? From 2010, there was this phenomenon of extremism, of kidnapping Westerners as hostage, and we began to see warnings being put out by the ambassador. One time, in fact, I was quite proud of this. Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State at the time, put out a message saying, I would advise you not to go to the famous festival in the desert in Timbuktu. So it made us into an even bigger deal. It gave us even more publicity. The whole world was talking about us. From there, the treats really started, because you had those Western hostages that were being held for ransom. And then Timbuktu was invaded, and well, you had the ban of music. So it was no longer possible to have the festival. We had to shut everything down on the 15th January 2012. Now the situation has improved a little in Timbuktu, but not quite enough for them to have a true festival of the desert. We can't do something very big because there are always attacks. To organize an event is always very risky because there are mines. It's very dangerous on the roads. Do you think you'll be able to bring the festival back to the desert in your lifetime? <laughs> That's the most difficult question for me. I like to hold on to hope, but it's complicated because it's already been 10 years and not a lot has changed. I don't think I have enough years left to see that, but I hope there are others. We on spare on the uh, fingers crossed en anglais. Well, as we say in English, we have our fingers crossed for you. Thank you so much, Manny. Merci, merci beaucoup. Well, there you go, Jonathan. Very well done, Priyanka. I, I, I really owe you. Merci beaucoup. To be fair, it, um, it's not impossible to travel to Timbuktu. It's just incredibly risky. And as it was for Western travellers from, from eras long ago, there's, there's still a high risk. You might die trying. Despite this reality, this city still lures. And despite what the rational part of our brains tell us, we want to test the myth to make Timbuktu real. Of course, it is a, a very real and very complicated place. 
a place that has been a byword for extremity for over a century, when in reality it's, it's a place of, of great tenacity. You're holding on to this impossibly rich culture in the, in the most trying of circumstances. I've been thinking of what Lazar said about Timbuktu's great imam, that the city's ancient manuscripts were like its lungs. His hope that one day soon Timbuktu is, is breathing freely and that maybe one day we might share that rare air. been listening to Return Ticket, almost in Timbuktu. You heard from Lazar Alondo Asomo, Cynthia Schneider, Manny Ansar and ABC foreign correspondents Eric Campbell. Producers are Hayley Crane and Alan Whedon. Technical production and musical theme by Brendan O'Neill. French translation courtesy of Priyanka Srinivasan and Remy Mouton. Executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. Tell your friends how much you just love this. Until next time. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. G'day, return ticketers for the Adams here. If you want to keep travelling, why don't you join us at Late Night Live? Oh, the places will take you. We'll go to Japan to hear about Japanese humour. Then we might head to the remote Faroe Islands for a, a bite at the Michelin two-star restaurant there. You can get analysis from people who live and breathe the countries that they're talking about and you can time travel too, perhaps back to the 16th century to hear how African journeys shaped the new world or ancient Persia where the intricate road systems crisscrossed the empire and it's very hard to say crisscrossed. Follow Late Night Live on the ABC Listen app. See you there.